Um, and this is actually the historic end of the Spanish Civil War. Um, obviously, um, the Republicans lost. Uh, they were on the losing side. And um, the winner gets to appear on the cover of Time magazine, um, March 27, 1939, General Franco um, there. So um, even though um, it actually ended a little slightly later than that, but already at that point it was clear that there was no way um, the fascists would not win. So that's why he was on the cover of Time magazine. Um, so, but what we're looking at obviously is uh, some time before that when things um, are still um, basically up in the air. Um, and so when, when we get to the end of Fulham Developed House, actually there's still hope for Robert in many ways. Um, and so we'll be looking at that at the end of today's lecture. But I also want to call your attention to a very interesting fact um, about the Spanish Civil War, uh, which is that it was very much uh, a women's war, um, one of the, unlike World War I or indeed World War II, where uh, there weren't a lot of women doing uh, the actual fighting. Um, the Spanish Civil War was one that was very proud of the fact that, um, there that women were participating um, in, in a fairly significant way. So we can see that both in the posters um, celebrating that fact, um, but also in in numerous um, picked photos that we have uh, of women either training or actually in combat situations. So it's just one of them. Um, they were trained just as a man would be trained. Um, and they were in uniform. Um, and this uh, were the uh, women militia from Barcelona, I think, and once more, uh, more women uh, fighting. So, you know, partly I think that accounts for the fact that Pilar is such a uh, powerful figure um, in For Whom the Bell Tolls, that this is one of the few Hemingway novels where um, there's um, a fairly uh, strong uh, woman's voice. We might think that maybe she's too good to be true, uh, that maybe it's overly idealized, but in any case, Pilar is a um, rare instance of a very powerful woman who would dare to um, cast her judgment, pass her judgment um, on the conduct of her own side. You know, when she was thought that the uh, revolution had begun badly, as we saw last time, a uh, woman who's not afraid to have that opinion. Um, so partly it had to do with the fact that the women were so important um, in the Spanish Civil War as soldiers. Um, but I think that it also had something to do with the personal circumstances in Hemingway's own life. Um, if you turn to the front of the For Whom the Bell Tolls, you'll see that it's dedicated to Martha Gellhorn, um, who uh, Hemingway was married to Martha Gellhorn um, then when they were writing, when they were covering the Spanish Civil War. Um, and she very much uh, was a very important journalist on her own right. So um, this is the book that she wrote uh, both about the Spanish Civil War um, but also about World War II um, and um, about, um, in fact, about Vietnam. Um, it went all the way uh, to the 60s. Um, so she really had a very long and distinguished career as a war journalist. And um, in recognition of the fact that actually was a United States postage stamp uh, celebrating her writing uh, with her wartime 
writings from Japan, China, that's right, uh, the Chinese Revolution was very important part of writing, um, and then Normandy and Dachau, um, the World War II episodes. Um, so uh, I was tempted actually to read some of her writing, but there's just no room um, to incorporate her wartime reporting into this class. But I just want to draw your attention to the fact that um, she was actually a very um, significant companion to Hemingway um, in more ways than one. So today um, we'll be talking about um, basically the narrative form of Hemingway. And you guys will be getting paper topics um, very soon from your uh, teaching fellows. Um, and one of the topics um, will have to do with forms of narration, the narrative structure. So I want to start talking about that and to get you guys thinking um, about um, various experimental or uh, well-rehearsed, but nonetheless um, still um, reinvigorated forms in this novel. Um, so we'll be looking at uh, questions of symmetry and the mirror effect that already we've seen a little bit of, right? Um, last time we talked about kind of negative mirroring, um, the earth moving for Robert Jordan and um, Maria when they made love and that being mirrored negatively with the bombing when the earth moved under the feet of the people who were bombed. Um, so that's one instance of a kind of negative symmetry, um, something being ironized uh, retroactively. Today we'll be looking at more instances of those kinds of symmetries. Um, so obviously possession and dispossession have and have not a long-standing uh, paradigm that we've been looking at, ironic and not ironic. Um, and then also ending and beginning, very important in this novel. But I want to begin by looking at one particular symmetry, uh, which is the symmetry of brutality or brutal conduct. Um, execution that we saw, the execution of the fascists that we saw last time in chapter 10. Um, and then in chapter 31, um, a similar, maybe uh, more horrendous episode of fascist violence, the rape that's <coughs> inflicted on Maria. Um, so it really goes back also to the importance of women in the Spanish Civil War as well. Um, and because rape is such a um, um, kind of explosive subject. Um, there's been lost done on rape. This is um, Susan Brown Miller's, again, so Will's one of the classic uh, considerations of rape. Um, there also has been loss and loss of representation of rape in painting, um, and especially rape considered as a metaphor for uh, the brutalities. Uh, perpetrated on the defeated by the victors. So, you know, even though it's the women who are getting raped, um, it really is a kind of a metaphor for uh, what happens to the loser in war. Um, so Poussin actually had a number of paintings. I don't even, I can't even keep count of the significant number. Um, this is one, and this is um, another one at the Louvre, a very well-known painting. Um, it can get monotonous after a while. Um, I mean, they they are different, but they're also quite a bit alike. Um, so when um, Picasso um, came to redoing this theme, you can see that this is a real um, new departure. It looks nothing like the Poussin paintings. Um, and so that is the sort of the 20th century take 
um, um, a very uh, time-honored theme. And I would argue that Hemingway is, in his own way, doing a novelistic rendition uh, of the rape of the Sabine women and the rape of just one particular woman, Maria. Um, and I would argue that it is every bit as innovative as the Picasso painting coming out at the same time, a complete departure from tradition. Um, so what is innovative about Hemingway, and it actually goes back to his long-standing interest in the mirror, um, and, and uh, looking at yourself in the mirror, we, last time we saw that when Robert was dropping the gun, uh, the pistol that was misused by his father, he was looking at himself, his mirror image in the water, looking at himself holding the gun and then dropping the gun. So we've already seen one instance of the mirror in For Whom the Bell Tolls, and this is a much more traumatic instance of that. I saw my face in the mirror of the barbershop and the faces of three others who were leaning over me, and I knew none of the faces, but in the glass I saw myself and them, but they saw only me. And it was as though one were in the dentist's chair, and there were many dentists, and they were all insane. My own face I could hardly recognize because my grief had changed it, but I looked at it and knew that it was me. But my grief was so great that I had no fear, nor any feeling but my grief. So this is the beginning. This is not actually the rape. Uh, it's just cutting off her hair. Um, in many ways, uh, uh, innocuous exercise, but the rape would come after that. Um, and Maria doesn't talk about the actual rape. So this is all as close as we can get, is the looking at herself in the mirror. Um, and I think that it is, um, a kind of uh, belated um, rejoinder to the earlier episode of Robert looking at his own face in the water, um, in the sense that this is um, associated with trauma for, for some reason. Um, to look at oneself in the mirror is, is, is a kind of a, a traumatic tableau for Hemingway. Um, it's the precondition for some kind of trauma. Um, in the case of the earlier episode with Robert looking at himself in, mirrored in the water, it's actually the beginning of a cleansing process. He's ridding himself of that pistol that he would want to have nothing to do with. Um, in this case, Maria looking at herself in the mirror as the rape is about to happen is the beginning of the trauma. So let's look at the visual tableau that Hemingway is creating for us. Because of the optics, this particular optics of this scene, um, Maria can see herself um, and then the three of them. And they can look at the mirror and they see only Maria. So this is a great example of how self-consciousness is, um, in many ways, uh, the burden of the person who is tortured. Um, the, the people who are doing the torturing um, see only the object of the Torture, so they get all the pleasure from being able to inflict maximum damage um, on, the, on the person that they are torturing. They don't see themselves doing it. That's what enables them to do it, is that they don't see themselves. Um, Maria sees herself and she sees the three people who are able to do this um, for her. Um, and what we're beginning to see is, in many ways, the beginning of a process of dispossession. Maria looks at herself 
but because of those three looming figures behind her, already she's not quite herself. She is herself plus those three other people. And she's also not quite herself because um, they're cutting off her hair. So she's losing a very important part of her identity. So she's beginning not to recognize herself. And um, this process of recon not recognizing herself would get dramatized um, in a way that goes back actually to the image of the two lines that we talked about and that Robert Motherwell also uh, uh, um, represented in numerous paintings, um, the two orderly lines that um, would be the utopian ideal uh, of, um, of political ritual in the execution of the fascists. In this case, um, it is a, once again a retroactive ironization of that earlier utopian moment. We get the same two lines, except that those two lines have now have a completely different meaning. At that time, I wore my hair in two braids, and I watched in a mirror one of them lifted one of the braids and pulled on it, so it hurt me suddenly through my grief, and then cut it off close to my head with a razor. And I saw myself with one braid, and a slash where the other had been. Then he cut off the other braid, but without pulling on it, and the razor made a small cut on my ear, and I saw blood come from it. Canst thou feel the scar from my, with thy finger? Yes, but would it be better not to talk of this? This is nothing. I will not talk of that which is bad. So he had cut both braids close to my head with a razor, and the others laughed, and I did not even feel the cut on my ear. And then he stood in front of me and struck one across the face and struck me across the face with a brace while the other two held me. And he said, this is how we make red nuns. This will show thee how to unite with thy proletarian brothers, bride of the red Christ. And he struck me again and again across the face with a brace which had been mine. And then he put the two of them in my mouth and tied them tight around my neck, nodding them in the back to make a gag, and the two holding me laugh. So this is the new use to which lines could be put. The two braids belonging to oneself um, can be used as weapons against oneself. So this is very much the same logic as the earth rising up and hitting the man that that has been nourishing up to this point, and uh, that is um, so. It's, it's, it's really the, the complete reversal uh, of the meaning of something um, that really is a part of you, and the radical alienation um, of that thing, um, and the instrument instrumentalization of that thing into a weapon. Um, but even that, I think, is less. Um, traumatic than the effect of looking mm -hmm. at the mirror and watching yourself losing first one braid and then the other, and then watching the transformation um, of your face when that is happening. Um, it is not only inflicting that on Maria, but also making her watch herself undergo that transformation, that she's becoming an alien being even to her own eyes. Um, so this is the final, this is the conclusion uh, of that act of dispossession. Then the one who had gagged me 
ran a clipper over from my head, first from the forehead all the way to the back of the neck, and then across the top, and then all over my head and close behind my ears. And they held me so I could see into the glass of the barber's mirror all the time that they did this. And I could not believe it as I saw it done, and I cried and cried. But I could not look away from the horror that my face made with the mouth open and the braids tied in it and my head coming naked under the clippers. Um, so this is the closest that Hemingway will get to um, giving us an image of Maria being rendered completely defenseless because all the things that shelter ourselves are being taken away from her. Um, here might not be the most powerful form of shelter, um, but it is um, a form of shelter in the sense that without it, we really look very naked, naked in a kind of psychological sense. Um, and Maria will, be, will become naked in more than that sense. Um, but it ha also has to do with uh, what kind of an object Maria would be in the world. Before this happens, she would never be an object to herself. She would always be a subject to herself in the sense that she would never actually see herself um, as she is seeing herself right now. So it is really taking away her relation to herself. That is being taken away from her. It's not even just the hair, you know, which is nothing and which will grow back, although we can also see the Hemingway is quite obsessed with hair and the cutting off of hair, um, just as uh, Fitzgerald is in Bernice cuts her hair. Um, but the physical removal of the hair is really nothing um, compared with the destruction of a long-standing relation that one has to oneself. And I think that we see a similar operation um, when it is when, when, when someone would insult you uh, to the point where you don't actually recognize the person who is being insulted. Um, it might not ever have happened to you, and very rarely it happens um, to anyone. Um, but Sir Neil Hurston talks about that um, in an essay called How I Became the Colored Me, uh, was that when she was growing up um, in a black community in Florida, um, but she never saw herself as black until she was made to feel herself as black. So it's losing one kind of identity to oneself. And what is happening here is a similar kind of situation that suddenly she sees herself as something that she has never seen herself as before. So it is both that operation, but also the additional horror that she cannot take her eyes away from the mirror. She could easily have shut her eyes, right? So the psychological atrocity of this scene is that the dynamics of the scene is such that she cannot take her ways, take her eyes away from this thing that she cannot bear to watch. Um, it is the gluing of her eyes to something that she would want to do everything to remove her eyes from. It is that gluing um, that is also part of the atrocity. Um, so it is. It, it is. It is the way that Hemingway chooses to talk about rape, not um, the very completely recognizable uh, scenario that Poussin has made 
classic, you know, in his classic compositions, um, and not even the Picasso representation, um, which still has to do much more with someone crying out in protest. We can almost hear the sound in the Picasso representation. In the Maria episodes, there is absolutely no sound because her mouth has been gagged. So it's the absolute silencing of Maria and the complete reduction of that scenario into a visual scenario without sound in both the Poussin and in the Picasso painting. Uh, what makes it slightly bearable is that we can imagine those women as crying out. Um, and it is that crying out that makes them human and registers the resistance to what is being done to them. In the case of Maria, because it is strictly a mirror effect and because it is strictly a visual tableau and because the mouth is gagged, um, it is completely soundless. So it is the deprivation of voice um, along with the cutting of the hair. Um, it's those two things that work to create the maximum effect of victimization in the rape scenes. So we can see that for Maria, this possession um, is a central narrative fact, and it is registered with full dramatic effect um, as unforgettable an instance of rape as any um, in American literature without actually representing the act itself. Um, so that is part of the innovation as well, is that you don't actually go anywhere near the actual deed. Um, given the fact that this possession is so important for Maria, I think that we have to ask a related question is to what extent is this possession central for Robert? Um, I think it is an open question. I hope that you guys will talk about it in section. Is whether or not Maria actually gets to recover from that act of, of, of this possession. Um, has she recovered fully from that rape or is she still living in the shadow of that rape? How long does it take for that shadow to go away? Uh, is she still within the narrative of dispossession all the way through for whom the bell tolls? So that's an open question for Maria. For Robert, um, it's a slightly different question, and it has to do with two possible trajectories for Robert. Um, and so what I would like to um, do here is to give you a demonstration of one way to write your final paper, um, which is to write half of the paper as dedicated to one argument and the other half as dedicated to the opposite argument. So this is, uh, would be an interesting experiment um, to do, basically you're trying to be a lawyer, right? Lawyers are supposed to argue either side of the case. Um, you know, it's an intellectual exercise. Um, usually it takes, for most of us, it takes a little more than that. We actually have to have some kind of emotional investment uh, in something uh, to um, argue, to make a very convincing case, but supposedly someone who's um, trained as a lawyer should be able to argue either side. So what I'm ask, offering you as one possibility um, in the final paper is to um, make an argument um, one way and then in exactly the opposite way. Um, and in this case, it's not even a stretch for me um, to argue both sides of the case because actually I'm completely torn in my mind. So actually there is emotional investment on my part in 
both sides of the argument. So um, the two opposing arguments, um, obviously, would be one would be uh, that to have a uh, foam de Beltos uh, is a, a narrative about dispossession um, that what, what Robert ends up with at the end of the novel is as a have-not, that he starts out with something um, and then by the end of the novel everything is taken away from him, that he is completely empty-handed at the end of the novel. Um, a very hush uh, reading of the novel. The other, um, and I'd like to end with that, is to argue that it actually is a narrative of repossession. Uh, yes, that a lot has been taken away from him, uh, but that maybe we could still make a case that he's not totally empty-handed at the end of the novel. So I like to, I hope I'll be able to make a compelling case for both. Uh, but let's start with uh, trajectory one. And um, obviously in order to make a case for Robert as a have-not, I think that we have to put an ironic spin on the word to have. Um, especially on a memorable line, Roberto, what hast thou? Um, and I want to bring back actually to a similar use, ironic use of the word have in As I Lay Dying. Um, and following from that, we can look at the narrative structure of Whom the Bell Tows and look at it as a kind of a narrative enactment in terms of the formal structure of the novel as a narrative enactment of the act of dispossession that Robert is losing control of the narrative that an arm and a leg has been cut off from him and taken over by someone else. And comparing that with uh, maybe a kind of a similar situation in to have and have not. Um, so first, to have as an ironic word. This is at the very end of the novel. Maria was kneeling by him and saying, Roberto, what hast thou? He said, sweating heavily, the left leg is broken, guava. The sweat-streaked, grisly face bent down by him, and Robert Jordan smelt the full smell of Pablo. Let us speak, he said to Pilar and Maria. I have to speak to Pablo. Does it hurt much? Pa Does it hurt much, Pablo asked. He was bending close over Robert Jordan. No, I think the nerve is crushed. Listen, get along. I'm mugged, see. I will talk to the girl for a moment. Clearly, there's not much time. Clearly. I think you would do better in the Republic, Robert Jordan said. Nay, I'm for Grados. Use your head. Talk to her now, Pablo <coughs> said. There is little time. I'm sorry. Thou hast this, English. Since I have it, Robert Jordan said, let us not speak of it, but use thy head. Thou hast much hair. Um, it is very hard to not to notice the way that the key player in this passage is the verb to have. Um, it begins with Maria asking Robert innocently, what hast thou? Because in fact she doesn't know whether the leg is really broken, um, but he knows. Um, so um, and it's at this point, it's the switching of Pablo for Maria um, that for me is, represents one of the 
cruel decisions on Hemingway's part. Um, that instead of having Maria still bending over him, um, the person who is now bent over Robert is Pablo, and what he smells is the full smell of Pablo. It's a very, very significant detail um, in the sense that Robert still doesn't really know Pablo. He remain, remains a mysterious figure um, all the way through. I mentioned last time that a lot of things happen. Um, Pablo does a lot of things. He thinks lots of things when we're not privy to what is going on in the narrative. Um, and likewise for Robert, he simply doesn't know what's going on inside Pablo's head or what Pablo is doing. He's executing other people when, when Robert isn't looking. So all of this we kind of suspect might be happening, but we just never know. Um, so Pablo is, 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 from beginning to end, he's always an opaque character, both to Robert and to us. But all that Robert can get at this moment is the full smell of Pablo, that, that is, it is the overwhelming Older, almost like the smell of honeysuckle that is coming to Robert at the end of his life. Um, that is about the most that he can, that he will ever get. It's not a cerebral understanding uh, of Pablo, it's just an animal apprehension of how powerful a man this is, smells an animal sense. And he's an animal's fear and apprehension, but also recognition what kind of a man Pablo is. Um, so Pablo asks an innocently enough question, how does it hurt much? Um, but he knows that there's no way Robert can travel, there's no way he can go with the rest of the people. So um, that's, he knows perfectly well how much time really is left to Robert. Um, and there is um, an upfront cruelty, I think, um, in the last thing that Pablo says to uh, Robert, I'm sorry thou hast this English. From beginning to end, the refusal of recognition that Robert is American and not English, that he has a name even. Um, you know, for Pablo, Robert is just like Kashkin, some of the rare name who comes in who destroys the bridge, destroys something, works explosive, is killed. Here's another of those. A whole string of foreigners coming through with totally forgettable names and not even getting the nationality right. So this is the ultimate insult um, inflicted by Pablo on Robert at the very end of his life. And Robert is absolutely defenseless, you know. He is defenseless physically, he is defenseless psychologically and emotionally. Um, all he can say, um, is in fact this omission of defeat really, um, giving the last bit of advice, telling Pablo to go back. They are behind the enemy's lines, right? So they are in, actually in fascist, in nationalist territory, and he advises Pablo to go back to the Spanish Republic, but Pablo says, no, I'm actually going to go further away from the Spanish Republic. Um, I'm for Grados. And actually that turns out to be a really smart decision because if they had gone back to the Spanish Republic, they would actually all have been killed. So Robert is actually right to end with the last line, Dow has much head. Um, the symmetry here is between Robert having a broken leg and Pablo 
having much head. He's the brainy one. This is the ultimate rewriting of the power dynamics in <coughs> For Whom the Bell Tolls. We've been going along the assumption that is the person with the knowledge of the technology, the person with the knowledge of the world, the person who can speak several languages. We've been going on the assumption that that person is going to be on top, that you know, he's, the future belongs to him. The irony, ultimate irony, of this novel is, in fact, this is the person who's going to lose out, who will have no future at all. So in many ways, we can either say it is a very brutal, undoing of everything that uh, Robert is believed in. Or we can say, you know, it actually is a kind of inverted utopian vision um, that there is still a future for the Spanish peasants, even though they seem so disadvantaged in the modern world, um, even though they seem completely incapable of functioning outside of the very limited environment. Um, because they are capable of functioning within that very limited environment. Actually, they have a chance to survive, at, at least that's the narrative that, uh, that the Hemingway is giving us. Um, so a kind of negative utopia for Robert and a positive utopia for Pablo. Um, and it is ironic, but I don't think that it actually is. It's fully ironic that Pablo should be the embodiment of some kind of utopian hope at the end of the novel. Um, and just to give you um, a kind of a comparison, point of comparison, for similar use of the verb to be in SLA dying, almost exactly the same. Um, Cash has a broken leg. He has had two broken legs. He lies on the box with a quilt rolled under his head and a piece of wood under his knee. I reckon we ought to have left him at Armstead's Pa said, I haven't got a broken leg, and Pa hasn't, and Dao hasn't. And it's just the bones cash says. It kind of grinds together a little on the bone. It don't bother none. So exactly. Hemingway and Fitzgerald have the same intuition about the extent to which the verb to have can be ironized. Um, so given the fact that Robert is well on his way, well, I mean, not even well on his way, he's arrived at his destination, uh, which is the state of dispossession at the end of the novel, uh, we should not be surprised that um, that destination is well prepared for um, some ways before that. Um, so I just want to call your attention to a narrative innovation in For Whom the Bell Tolls, uh, which is the removal of the narrative from Robert Jordan. Um, he doesn't get to tell the story, right? There are four chapters um, told by someone else um, quite literally cutting off the narrative from Robert. And those four chapters are the chapters when Andres, who is charged with the mission to go and deliver this very important message um, to the central command that, um, the, that, the, um, that, that actually the enemy knew what they were going to launch this attack. Um, that very important information that was going to be conveyed by Andres is told in four chapters that have nothing, absolutely nothing, to do with Robert. So let me just give you one instance of that removal of the narrative from Robert, chapter 40. He's a non-protagonist. He's a non-participant. He doesn't show up at all in that chapter. During the time that Robert Jordan has slept through, the time he has spent planning the destruction of the bridge, and the time that he had been with Maria, Andres 
had made slow progress. Until he had reached the Republican lines, he had traveled across country and through the fascist lines as fast as a countryman in good physical condition who knew the country well could travel in the dark. But once inside the Republican lines, it went very slowly. Um, so this irony right here that we detect um, that uh, for Andres, I mean, this is very dramatic because actually it takes so much, much more time to travel <coughs> through supposedly your own side because he's questioned and detained by everyone, uh, whereas it's much faster to go through enemy terrain because it's just traveling as someone who is physically fit can travel, which is very fast. Um, so those four chapters, um, 34, 36, 40, and 42, those four chapters are devoted to the irony of how slow it is for, and how impossible it is uh, for Andres to deliver that crucial message. Um, but the other additional irony is that Robert is fast becoming a non-protagonist in his own narrative, which is very much a prelude to the end. At the end of For Whom the Bell Tolls, he would be a non-player in the future of the Spanish Republic. He would be a non-player in Maria's life, in Pablo's life, in everyone's life. Um, and Hemingway has already paved the way for Robert being a non-player much earlier. So we can think back to many other instances of someone being a non-player in Soldier's Home in, in Our Time, uh, Krabs being a non-player, his sister pay, playing basketball, um, and Krabs being on the sideline and being a non-player in that way. So Hemingway is, has given a lot of thought for what it means for a man who once used to be an important player to be relegated to the sidelines and to suffer the fate of being a non-player. And he's enacting that one more time um, in For Whom the Bell Tolls. So um, I just want to um, highlight the interconnections among Hemingway's uh, works. This is not the first time where he has removed the narrative from the supposed protagonist of that narrative. And to have and have not, a similar fate has been visited upon Harry Morgan, right? So in chapters one to five, told from Harry Morgan's point of view, chapter six, all of a sudden, he's referred to as a man. You ain't going to fix me up, the nigger said. The man whose name was Harry Morgan said nothing then because he liked the nigger and there was nothing to do now but hit him and he hit him. When we were talking about this passage, we said that suddenly Harry becomes Harry Morgan, um, someone looked at completely from the outside and who is in fact put in the same position as the black person. They've both lost something. Um, in, a, in a more abstract way, we can say that what Robert um, and we can also just go back to that moment. At the very end of For Whom the Bell Tolls, Robert is still Robert Jordan. He never gets to the stage where he can simply be a Robert. He is still referred to in that alienating form. Um, so that too is uh, a similar a structure, very much similar um, to the alienating device in uh, To Have and Have Not. I think that I've done, um, you know, my probably everything that I can um, to make a case for um, to have and have not. 
as a novel of dispossession um, that basically uh, Robert emerges as completely empty-handed uh, at the end of the novel, that he's lost his leg, he's lost Maria, he's lost his life, he's about to lose his life, he's lost even the novel that is supposedly his. So it is a loss almost completely equal to the loss of Tao at the end of As I Lay Dying. Um, and it really is possible to read both Hemingway and Faulkner um, as authors who have dedicated to about the bleakest vision possible of human possibilities. Um, but I want to um, now make the opposite case, uh, which is that it's not quite as bleak as that. That maybe there's a way in which we can think about the verb to have as a somewhat non-ironic uh, word. So, um, and, and also that there's a way to read the narrative, um, not as one that highlights or maybe passes the, the absolute damning verdict that there really is nothing at the end for Robert. Um, so trying to recover something for Robert at the end of the narrative. Um, so um, it turns out that Hemingway is also quite self-conscious about using the verb to have as a non-ironic verb. Uh, this is a little earlier, so you know it has the disadvantage of coming before that final very ironic moment, but still is a moment that we should look at. And another thing, don't ever kid yourself about loving someone. It's just that most people are not lucky enough ever to have it. You never had it before, and now you have it. What you have with Maria, whether it lasts just through today and a part of tomorrow, or whether it lasts for a long time, is the most important thing that can happen to a human being. There will always be people who say it does not exist because they cannot have it. But I tell you, it is true that you have it and that you're lucky even if you die tomorrow. Um, so, you know, this is, uh, this is relatively speaking, uh, an instance where we have the verb to have in an unironic, non-ironic mode um, that is affirming um, the primacy and the durability of what he had or has or continue to have with Maria. Um, but we also know that even in this non-ironic moment, the verb to have is very precarious. Um, it is precarious because it's so much dependent on being able to refute other people who would not credit you with having that thing, right? So this, this consciousness that there will always be people who say it does not exist because they cannot have it. Because what you have here, what Robert has here, is so intangible because there's really no material way to demonstrate that it is there. Um, it simply is not an object, it's not a physical object in the world. Um, there's no evidence, really, there's no material evidence um, that it is a thing in the world. Um, all you have is your subjective intuition that you did have it, that you continue to have it, um, and that having it makes all the difference. It is only a subjective <coughs> conviction it doesn't carry the weight of objective demonstrability. Um, and so that is one strike against it, that other people will not be persuaded by the fact that you did have it. 
they will continue to tell you that you didn't. Um, the other thing, uh, which I think is it actually plays out in a kind of formal level, has to do with the switch of pronouns in this uh, passage, right? So it begins with, um, actually, it, all the way through the, this passage, the pronoun has already switched. Um, even though Robin has been referring to, has been just talking in the first person singular, I, um, in this critical moment, he's actually referring to himself as you. You never had it before, and now you have it. And even um, more powerfully, in the last line where you see both the pronoun I and the pronoun you, but I tell you it is true that you have it and that you are lucky even if you die tomorrow. The co-presence of the pronoun I and the pronoun you suggests that it is an effort. It takes some willpower to convince himself that he did have it. I'm telling you that you did have it. It's not just that other people are not persuaded, but Robin himself has to be convinced, he has to be beaten over the head by this other eye um, to believe that, yes, that what he did have with Maria does make a difference and does make him a half. So because of those two considerations, I would say that this is um, a non-ironic use of the word to have, but heavily circumscribed. Uh, with other possibilities really looming heavily on the horizon. Um, and um, the is replayed in the very last moment of the novel. He looked down the hill slope again, and he thought, I hate to leave it, is all. I hate to leave it very much, and I hope I have done some good in it. I've tried to with what talent I had. Have, you mean. All right, have. I have fought for what I believe in for a year now. If we win here, we will win everywhere. The world is a fine place and worth the fighting for, and I hate very much to leave it. And you had a lot of luck, he told himself, to have had such a good life. You've had just as good a life as grandfathers, though not as long. You've had just as good a life as anyone because of these last days. So once again, non-ironic use of the verb to have. but ticking an effort of the will to convince himself. He has to be told, you've had a good life as your grandfather. You've had as good a life as anyone. Um, it has to be a command issue by part of himself. Um, and so it takes that form that it is not, um, it's not, an, uh, it's not a, a natural or unselfconscious uh, conviction. It is a conviction arrived at through some struggle and with quite a bit of effort. Um, so um, Robert, I think, is, is, is actually a, a very um, um, fragile vehicle um, as, as a representative um, of a kind of narrative of repossession, just because he's so vulnerable um, at the end of the novel. Um, but I think that, that Hemingway actually has stepped in um, and provided one form of authorial intervention that allows us um, possibly to read the novel as affirming something about Robert so that he's not totally uh, a loser at the end of the novel. Um, and that has to do with a very stylized, very uh, deliberate narrative structure of For Whom the Bell Tolls. Uh, you notice that the first line of the novel reads, he lay flat on the brown pine needle floor of the forest. 
his chin on his folded arms, and high overhead, the wind blew in the top of the pine trees. In the very last line of the novel, he could feel his heart beating against the pine needle floor of the forest. So Robert totally alone, but in the end is the beginning. Um, and so it is that impersonal narrative structure um, that he's not dead. It's almost as if he were beginning over again, that the story is going to begin anew. Um, it is that formal structure, the formal mirror effect, that allows us to entertain the illusion that not all is over, even though we know, you know that physically it is over, um, that there's no way it could have a different ending or that things could go on. But nonetheless, the form of the narrative is such, it feels like the beginning rather than the end. Um, and maybe this is really the best that Hemingway can do for Robert, is for the reader to want this to be a new beginning and for the reader to feel that this isn't the end yet. This is the best that we can do for Robert.